I once encountered an interpretation of Dracula where the writer argued it as an allegory for xenophobia, a positioning that Dracula is a dirty foreigner who has come to our western land to prey on our women and spread disease. You can definitely see it that way, and while I don't think Bram Stoker consciously was thinking of this while he was writing Dracula, he is a product of his environment, has internalized certain biases, and he did live in Victorian England during a syphilis outbreak that was being blamed on foreigners. I think this is evidence that close reading, not only does it reveal more about the writer than it does about the subject being discussed, but no matter how trashy or lowbrow or or going straight to the lizard brain senses of a person is that uh, there are still layers that you can go underneath. I always try to put whatever the subject is of my episodes into its proper socio-political context and talk about how it reveals elements of who we are as a culture. And for some films, that is easier than others. I'm going to try to do this with the Lizard 8 movie. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello! And also Toby, who uh, we're doing this episode at his suggestion. Welcome back to the show, Toby. Hello, everyone! So, why did you want to do an episode about uh, Godzilla vs. Kong? Because I thought it would be cool, since it's one of the newest movies. Yes, this is the first movie to make a huge splash after the pandemic hit. We'll be talking about that in a little bit. But uh, first, the plot recap. This film takes place five years after Godzilla slew King Ghidorah and made himself the Monster King. We join King Kong as he's being monitored by the Monarch Group inside a holographic dome situated on Skull Island. The dome shields Kong's presence from Godzilla's instincts. Should Godzilla become aware of Kong, he would perceive Kong as a threat to his alpha status and would attack him. Uh, we meet Kong expert Eileen Andrews and her adopted daughter Gia. Gia is the last Iwi native. She is deaf and, unbeknownst to the grown-ups, can communicate with Kong via sign language. Meanwhile, Bernie Hayes, an employee of Apex Cybernetics and host of a Titan Conspiracy Theory podcast, the kaiju are called Titans in the Monsterverse, I have to call it that, steals data suggesting some nefarious doings at a Pensacola facility of Apex. Godzilla then attacks the facility, the first aggressive act he's done in years. As this goes on, Madison Russell, she was in the previous Godzilla film, disobeys her father and begins investigating Godzilla's activities with the reluctant help of her friend Josh. Uh, Apex CEO Walter Simmons recruits monarch scientist and hollow earth theorist Nathan Lynn to lead a search for a new power source inside the hollow earth, which is the homeland of Kong, Godzilla, and all the other titans. Nathan is reticent since the Hollow Earth gravity fluctuations killed his brother during a prior expedition, but Simmons assures him that Apex's newly designed hovercrafts, which they call heaves, <laughs> can withstand the anti-gravity. And yes, whenever the heaves were mentioned <laughs> while we were watching this film, Cheryl made that noise, and that is the main reason why she's there, so we can preserve that for posterity. It's about my love of gigantic monsters. It's very funny, is it? Yeah, well. Cheryl's a filthy casual. Me and Toby were hardcore. I've seen like eight Godzilla movies. It's just I didn't sit down on purpose for any of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're married to a G fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Nathan meets with Eileen and convinces her to allow Kong to guide the team through a hollow earth entry point in Antarctica. Nathan, Eileen, Gia, and an Apex team led by Simmons' daughter Maya board a modified barge escorted by the U.S. Navy. A sedated Kong is restrained on top with chains which is a reference to the 1963 King Kong vs. Godzilla film. More on that uh, later. Godzilla attacks the convoy and grapples with Kong, who is still chained to the boat for most of the fight, but retreats after the ships disable their power and go inert, convincing him that the Navy has lost and they are no longer a threat. Kong is then airlifted to the Hollow Earth entrance via helicopter. In the 1963 film, it's done with balloons, and they change it to helicopters because balloons are silly and helicopters aren't. This film's not goofy at all. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to use helicopters. Why do you think that helicopters make more sense than balloons? Uh, because balloons will just fly into the air, and eventually they will just pop. Okay, I saw a documentary called Up, where the balloons don't do that, so that shows what you know. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Gia, who revealed that Kong is fluent in sign language on the barge after the Godzilla attack, begrudgingly persuades Kong to enter the Hollow Earth. He's reluctant at first, but she says, hey, there might be other Kongs in there, and you're a lonely Kong. You want family, right? As that's going on, Madison and Josh join forces with Bernie. They sneak into the wrecked Apex base and find a secret facility underground. They stumble into a monorail transport that... Monorail. That whisks them to Apex headquarters in Hong Kong. They travel from Pensacola to Hong Kong in like a couple of hours, and no, that's not the most ridiculous element of this film. Where's Pensacola? Florida. <laughs> it's an underground monorail, so they... Just, just let it go. But once there, they discover that Apex is building a robotic Godzilla doppelganger called Mecha Godzilla. The machine is to be controlled by Ren Serizawa, the son of the late Ishiro Serizawa. Yeah, his dad died in the previous movie. He was Ken Watanabe. Let them fight. <laughs> Anyways, he's controlling Mechagodzilla through uh, telepathic neural networks from the skull of the severed Ghidorah head. Apex, however, is unable to fully power Mechagodzilla, hence the search for the power source inside of Hollow Earth. Inside Hollow Earth, Kong and his human companions find an environment similar to Skull Island. They discover a massive throne room where, you know, Kong finally gets a chair. Cheryl was very happy. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, arches and a nice little statue. This family did well. Yeah, and there's evidence of a centuries-long war between Kong species and Godzilla species. From a dead Godzilla-type uh, skeleton, Kong picks up a giant battle axe whose blade is made out of a Godzilla dorsal plate. And this is the part of the movie where they just abandon all pretext of seriousness and start leaning into their stupid as hard as they can. <laughs> Once the power source is detected, Maya sends its signature to the Apex base in Hong Kong over Eileen's objections. Once Mecha Godzilla switches on a little more, Godzilla rushes to Hong Kong to challenge it. Sensing Kong, Godzilla uses his fire breath to bore a hole straight down through to Hollow Earth from Hong Kong. Maya and her team are crushed in the mayhem, but Kong ascends to Hong Kong with Nathan, Eileen, and Gia close behind. Kong immediately attacks Godzilla and, thanks to the axe's ability to absorb Godzilla's fire breath, initially gets the upper hand. However, Godzilla is able to overpower Kong and thrashes Kong to a knockout. 
Madison, Josh, and Bernie are caught by security and brought to Walter. Despite Ren's concerns over the power source's volatility, Walter insists that Mechagodzilla is ready for combat. Apex instantly loses control of Mechagodzilla, who kills Walter, electrocutes Ren, and begins wreaking havoc upon Hong Kong. Godzilla attacks Mechagodzilla, but is overwhelmed. Nathan wrecks their heave. He's the hollow earth scientist, the cartographer guy. Oh, right, that guy. Yeah, it's difficult to retain knowledge of the humans' names. I wrote them down. Start, like, doing their hair colors. Blonde Nathan. Oh, I remember the blonde man. What? Anyways, he uses the heave in an effort to revive Kong. Once, Once Kong is conscious, Gia convinces him to put aside his enmity towards Godzilla and focus on their mutual foe which Kong is pretty reluctant of because, you know, Godzilla's a jerk and also his shoulder is dislocated and he's got to pop it back in like he's Wolverine. <laughs> Mechagodzilla uh, seems to be able to overpower both Titans, but Josh manages to stall the robot by pouring Bernie's flask of liquor over Mechagodzilla's control panel. Initially, he tried to hack it, but he doesn't know how to hack Apex's systems because he's a teenage boy who took, like, one HTML class at summer camp. This is the one element of the film they've decided to be realistic about. He just couldn't hack it as a, as a hacker. It's because it's hacking. This gives Godzilla a free moment to supercharge Kong's axe with his fire breath, allowing Kong to just ruin Mechagodzilla and tear his head off and hold it up to the sky and roar, and it's rad. The human characters reunite as the monsters go their separate ways. Final shot takes place sometime later of a uh, monarch observation post where they are looking upon Kong and his new kingdom on Skull Island. I mean, um, Hollow Earth, rather. And that is the film. And the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Toby seems to think that Godzilla and Kong are buds at the end of the movie, which is not Charles Reed. No, they act more like siblings. There's like a like, we can kind of cohabitate, just stay away from me and my things. Yeah, you were making lots of sibling comparisons when, say, Mechagodzilla was on top of Godzilla and Kong just jumped on top and diverted his laser breath. Oh, yeah, no 100%. The only people that were allowed to pick on my little sister was me. I was those people. <laughs> oh, wait, so you just said those people, and it's only one. Yeah. All right, and uh, before we get into the development of the film, tiny little nerd things that only bother nerds. Mechagodzilla's lasers are red instead of rainbow. I know! I'm sad. Yeah, because, you know, if Mechagodzilla had rainbow lasers coming out of his mouth, that would make the movie goofy. And Mechagodzilla is not silly looking at all with his red lasers. Yeah, and bright lights in Hong Kong, that's just way out of place. Yeah, they're fighting, like, Blade Runner Hong Kong. (laughs) Godzilla's roar, as ever, feels wrong to me in the Warner Brothers movies. He's not doing the screech thing. Oh yeah, development for the film. This is the first time that King Kong and Godzilla have shared a movie since 1963's King Kong vs. Godzilla. Several prior attempts had been made, but legal difficulties always got in the way. It was usually because Universal and later Warner Brothers did not want to share Kong with Toho. Uh, In this case, it is uh, Toho sharing Godzilla with Warner Brothers. Were they afraid they were going to get outshined? The whole reason that they lent King Kong to Toho in 1963 is because it had been, you know, the better part of 30 years since Kong had been in the movie, and they didn't think he was a valuable property, and they're like, all right, fine, whatever, play with him. But after that movie became a hit, they were like, oh, we can make more Kong movies. Give him back. Precious. He's mine! 
This is the 36th Godzilla movie and the 12th Kong movie. Mothra was initially intended to play a supporting role in the film, but was removed when the film's perspective length was reduced. Also, studios are often reluctant to use Mothra. They're afraid that Mothra will be a little too silly for people, historically. They're, they're okay with, like, giant dinosaurs or gorillas, but they think that foreign audiences will not be able to handle a giant butterfly. <laughs> This has come up a couple of times when Mothra versus Godzilla came out. It, it, it was marketed in the United States and Western Europe as Godzilla versus The Thing, and they didn't tell you what The Thing was until you, you know, saw the movie. <laughs> like, oh, it's a butterfly. It's a giant butterfly! It's a nighttime butterfly. It's a moth that's called a butterfly. Yeah, Zhang Ziyar was uh, set to reprise her role from Godzilla King of the Monsters, but was cut out of the film entirely. Uh, Lance Reddick's role, it, he's still in the movie, but it was severely reduced. Warner Brothers seemed to really want this movie to be under two hours. Yeah, I think that's why, well, at least one of the reasons why the human characters are so underdeveloped is because, I mean, the director seemed to give up, impress the impression that making the film shorter than most of the other uh, films in the series was his idea. It, it, it was likely the producers going like, yeah, we want to fit in more screenings per day. People are criticizing us for making Godzilla movies that are Godfather length. <laughs> A three-hour Godzilla movie might be a bit much. People are are, are here for the, the gorilla. They're not here. Yeah, throwing down the human parts. Nobody cares. Okay. Scenes where Ren Serizawa's relationship with his father were also trimmed away. Once again, I didn't realize he was supposed to be that guy's kid. And Ken Watanabe was supposed to return to the film for flashback scenes. But, yeah, none of that. Adam Wingard, who directed this film, he had been tapped by Peter Jackson to direct a sequel to Peter Jackson's super boring 2005 King Kong remake. That film never materialized, but I guess people remembered that he had an interest in the character. Uh, the film was shot in Australia, Hawaii, and uh, Hong Kong between November 2018 and February 2019. It was delayed for quite a bit for uh, edits, revisions, probably shortening, and then COVID. Before we move on to other things, let's talk about the cast. This is going to be brief because nobody cares about the humans in these things. It's true. Yep. All right, first off, uh, Alexander Skarsgård as Nathan Lind. Blonde Nathan. Blonde Nathan! <laughs> I didn't know he was a Skarsgård. Nathan! Yeah, he's a Skarsgård. Such a fun name. I, I like or that family because of the name. What? I mean, he's he's okay in this. Uh, he gives he gets a, like a, a hint of a character motivation. He's going down in there because he's a crazy, disgraced scientist, and his brother died, and he's trying to vindicate his brother in some way. There's like one throwaway shot where he's like lifting up a picture of him and his brother, yeah. and that's all we get. Then we have Rebecca Hall as Eileen Andrews. This is the first film role she did after giving birth, which is interesting, and I think she is the most overqualified person in this movie. Oh. Oh, she's the one with the deaf daughter. Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. She doesn't get as much here either. Uh, her interactions with Gia uh, illuminate her character a little bit. I also like the bit where um, Nathan kisses her on the cheek and she's like, bitch, what? Yeah, and he apologizes immediately because that was a bridge too far. Uh, I was afraid that over the course of the movie, they would like have some kind of like romantic subplot and kiss in the finale. And that never happened. And I was glad the people who made this movie knew that we didn't care if they shared a kiss at the end. Well, Good also, work, movie. Great. Also, there was no chemistry between them, even once. And he had no game. Yeah. And, you know, Alexander Skarsgård isn't a bad looking guy. He's not. 
between the two of them. Yeah, he, he, he's also a pretty charmless guy and also <laughs> kind of nervous and, and very sweaty. He, he, he really, really had something to prove and it, may, it came off as a little pathetic. But yeah, yeah, good acting in that. All right, then we have Millie Bobby Brown as Madison Russell. She is very wasted in this. Less to do than in King of the Monsters, where she's kind of a Godzilla whisperer. I, he did get drive a van. Yeah, her character arc, I believe, was likely hurt by the cuts quite a bit. Some people have said that you could fast forward through all of her scenes and not miss anything. That sounds harsh, but it's not entirely inaccurate, except for the scene when they stumble across Mecha Godzilla, because that's where you fit in the Mecha Godzilla info dump. And then we have Brian Tyree Henry as Bernie Hayes. He's the conspiracy theory guy. Okay, okay. I do think that this was also underserved. Whenever there's a conspiracy theory character in a movie, uh, they usually use him as a, like, a quip delivery device, and they barely gave him any quips to deliver. I mean, maybe those were all cut out as well. Yeah, he's got a couple of things, like, you know, a bit where he's taunting Josh by calling him tap water. Toby, Toby liked that. I still love that. And the last person, uh, Kaylee Hoddle as Gia. This is her first film role, and she is actually hearing impaired. Oh, I love it when they do inclusion casting. Yeah, it, it, it's good, because there aren't a lot, whole lot of opportunities for people with uh, disabilities when it comes to acting. So it, whenever there is somebody who is hearing impaired in the movie, they should find somebody who is, just to balance the scales a little bit. Oh, they prefer the term deaf, uh, according to Sylvan. So... Next thing I want to talk about is the music. It was composed by Tom Hulkenberg, who DJs under the title of Junkie XL, which is an unfortunate name. And it is not something he uses for his film composing credits anymore. He uses his regular name. This is the most successful film composer who worked under Hans Zimmer. Uh, oh. It is not surprising that he apprenticed under him. He borrows a lot of his tricks from him. One of the reasons why every Hollywood blockbuster has music that sounds like Zimmer. Not only is he just popular, especially since uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, but also film composition in general is always a committee affair. However, Zimmer, unlike most of his predecessors or contemporaries, likes to credit the people who work under him officially in the movie's credits. So that helps their resume. So lots of people who apprenticed under him got a resume boost by having their name appear in the end credits. Be like, yeah, we'll watch uh, Spider-Man. My name's there. That's so nice. Hulkenberg, uh, I think his major credit is uh, he did the music for Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, everything about that movie works. And I'm not usually a fan of his scores, but he does nice work there. Hulkenberg had actually been composing Godzilla music for fun before Wingard met him in uh, 2018. <laughs> I was made for this moment. Yeah. Yeah. One element of the score that he really wanted is that he wanted a bass drum that was 10 feet long. The what? studio would only give him one that was 8 feet long. He had to compromise. What? You need to just get another little 2 foot fly and just... I don't know, drums. <laughs> Toby, you're the drum expert. What? You drums? Yeah, yeah, Toby, what's the difference between an 8-foot uh, bass drum and a 10-foot bass drum? Uh... On paper, I can feel for his enthusiasm, but I don't think the music for this is especially noteworthy. Uh, I, I do think that for like a lot of modern Hollywood movies, the music often gets drowned out by sound effects and character dialogue, and maybe <laughs> if I listened to the score isolated, I would get more out of it. Also, the nerdy part of me is still pissy that they didn't use Godzilla's official theme. 
they did use the blah. Yeah, there, there, there weren't too many Hans Zimmer blahs in this. <laughs> and when they did use them, it was digital, and it wasn't like a French horn playing two notes, so it was a little different from the Zimmer blah. Yeah, put his own little spin on it. <laughs> All right, the reception for this film. Uh, the reviews were mostly positive, which I was not expecting. Most of them concluded that the human characters were underdeveloped, which, duh. But that uh, everyone seemed to think that the monster fights were cool. Because they were. Yep. I've been ragging on the human characters throughout. I think you could probably could have done more with them. We talked about that a bit. Uh, once again, uh, the, the central draw for uh, movies like this are the monster fights. So criticizing a kaiju feature for underdeveloped humans is like criticizing a fish for not knowing how to drive a bus. Like, you're missing the point maybe a little bit. And if that's really a big sticking point for you, the genre is not your wheelhouse. Find something else that you like and, and, and do that. As of this recording, Godzilla vs. Kong has grossed $358.6 million off its budget of roughly $155 to $200 million, which is so high. This is a trashy exploitation B-movie from the 50s that somehow has Spielberg money to spend. <laughs> But isn't that the kind of movie we need right now? I guess it is. It does have a great sense of escapism, and I do really like the visual aesthetic, and I think the special effects are cool, except for, you know, the one or two scenes where, where they don't look cool. When we first see Kong, he's a, he's a little under-rendered. <laughs> it is the most successful film since the COVID-19 pandemic. It, it, it shattered Christopher Nolan's weird time travel movie that nobody seemed excited about, except for Cinema Bros. <laughs> See, completely past Cheryl by. She she didn't even hear about Tenet. I don't know, that's what that movie was. Yeah, success is a relative term here when we're talking about domestic film gross during COVID nineteen. Godzilla vs Kong did get good word of mouth though. It has overperformed expectations. And with that out of the way, let's talk about themes first. And cycling back to what we just talked about, are the humans really necessary? I mean, somebody's gonna be in the vehicles. <laughs> somebody has to be driving the heaves. Such an unfortunate <laughs> name for those things. <laughs> and I already said that nobody cares about the people in a monster movie. Oh, except for the, the little people in the clamshell. Oh, you mean the, uh, the, the Peanuts and the Moffer movies? Yes. Yeah, they get a pass. But this made me think of something like Primal, which is also monster fights, and is completely free of dialogue, but has a cohesive story anyways. And lots of people are saying, hey, what if the next giant monster movie is just monsters fighting? We don't need humans to spoon-feed us exposition. Which, me, personally, if movies were made solely to appeal to me, as they should be, I'd be on board with that. But I can sort of get along with the idea that if you're going to dump $200 million, which is not inhuman amount of money into this big tentpole summer blockbuster franchise thing you're gonna have to play it kind of safe and if you're constructing a film that is going to appeal to a large international audience of various you know cultures and inclinations and expectations it is easier to convey info to this diverse audience if the humans are available to provide both exposition and scale to the monster fights 
and you're going to have to simplify them just so whatever they're saying, it hits the same in every single market, whether it's Mexico or Brazil or Canada or China or the Philippines or Australia. So I hear what you're saying. I do. But consider this. You remove all of the humans and then you just have a really impressive poppy kind of soundtrack. Lots of pop songs. Okay, for a second I thought you were referring to Poppy the YouTuber. <laughs> that is a thing that I know, yeah. No, <laughs> not at all caught off guard by that one. <laughs> what? Oh, she's ridiculous. Look her up. Very right, next talking point. No socio-political context. Uh, this brings me back to the 1963 film, which was a satire of media sensationalism. The central plot of 1963's King Kong vs. Godzilla is journalists manipulating Godzilla and Kong into a fight, since that would be a juicy story to cover. A big feud. Uh, yes. And this makes me think of, say, recent history of scandal-prone celebrity politicians getting lots of press coverage that amounts to free advertising and the pitfalls associated with such things. But yeah, there's none of that in Godzilla vs. Kong. Despite how eco-horror and nuclear paranoia are common themes in kaiju films, even the first ones, Godzilla King of the Monsters, the previous film in the series, used the monsters as a very heavy-handed metaphor for climate change. That film was a critical and commercial disappointment, even though I personally thought that it was pretty great and Hollywood should cater exclusively to me, but they're not going to do that. So perhaps filmmakers were being pressured to be less allegorical as well as being more concise in their giant ape versus giant lizard film. What do you think, Toby? Do you think there should be moralizing in your, in your giant monster movies or you just want the monsters to hit each other? Well, I can't argue with that. I mean, I came here for the monkey punching too. <laughs> I play fighting. What do you expect? All right. The next thing I want to bring up is color because this is a very colorful film. Yeah, we were pointing out that whenever they're in the Apex Lab, it's just bathed in like neon bisexual purple. Yep, purple and pink. Yeah, like there's this whole scene where they're just getting into like this giant neon elevator to the monorail, and it didn't need to be that bright. Yeah, uh, the last few Godzilla movies made in the United States were criticized for their drab color grading, and maybe they were perhaps overcompensating for that. Because the first American Godzilla film in this MonsterVerse series came out in 2007 or so, which was when we're still in the age of, like, gritty reboots with, like, Casino Royale and Batman Begins and Star Trek lens flare everywhere. So, yeah, the first Godzilla of this particular iteration is very much drenched in that gritty reboot flavor where everything is drab and they're like, we're going to take this giant fire-breathing dinosaur very, very seriously and treat it like it's deep and edgy. It did make Godzilla very much like a natural disaster, which was kind of fun. Yeah, using him as a metaphor for Hurricane Katrina and how ill-prepared we were to deal with that, I, I can see where they're coming from with that. However, I do think that the kaiju stick out less if the world is a, a bit less realistic as well. Because in Gritty Reboot Godzilla, he's still a big chonky boy. And you have Brian Cranston looking at the screen and going, oh, I'm a serious man. And you're like, look at a chonky boy. But now he's in a Speed Racer world. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I do love Speed Racer. Speed Racer! 
Yeah, I hasten to point out that the recent Marvel movies are often a lot more colorful, and they're the standard bearer for what blockbuster cinema is right now, and that leads me to seg into the concept of the cinematic universe, because nobody except the MCU seems to be able to make this work. <laughs> Like, not even the DC movies, and they are taking characters of comparable vintage and comparable cohesion and trying to build something around that, and it is not working nearly as well. Well, I mean, look at the tone that they're setting for their movies, though. Nobody wants to play with the loner. You can't put a bunch of loners together in a room and get them to get along. Except for the Breakfast Club. Okay. Uh, yeah, the Monsterverse, which I, keep, I hate saying Monsterverse. Uh, this is about as close to a success as it gets, really, outside of the Marvel movies. But we're still not getting two or three of them a year. I think part of this has to do with the fact that uh, everyone knows who Godzilla is, but his non-Japanese fan base isn't really big enough to support a film series that has Spielberg budgets, I don't think. Like, you know who Godzilla is, but you don't care. Your weirdo husband cares. I care. I care very deeply. I like when Godzilla has a baby. You like Manila? He's so cute though. He steps on his tail. <laughs> like, this is how you go play. I like yeah, that. Yeah, this is how you build a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I like want to target an audience like me. They get a put babysit. <laughs> I like that when Godzilla punches people in the face. Next theme, why am I rooting for Kong? Because Godzilla is my best friend and I love him. <laughs> a lot of people sympathize more with Kong. The movie seems to want you to. However, with the people that I watched it with, a lot of them were rooting for Chonky Godzilla. But King Kong adopted a human child and he just desperately wanted to like, I mean, and originally he wanted to like leave his house because it's stupid because it had a roof. But then he immediately missed his roof because he was chained to a boat and he had rain on his face for like two days. And, and then he just wanted to go home. Yeah, King Kong is very put upon in this movie. And Godzilla is just a bully. He just wants to be the best monster in the world. He wants to beat up anybody who might be stronger than him. That's his motivation. But you know what? He got his ego checked by the end. And he was just like, okay, fine. Goodbye. <laughs> See you later. I do think a part of it is that Kong's simian features allow him to perform facial acting. He, he's always making these faces of like, oh, this shit again. Or Sylvan's <laughs> favorite part, where Godzilla's fire breath erupts out of the destroyer. And Kong leaps away with this big, oh shit face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and my favorite scene in the movie, where Gia is trying to convince Kong to put aside his dislike for, for Godzilla to fight Mechagodzilla, and he doesn't want to, and he's just done, and he's finally just, oh, fine. <laughs> just like, fine! Toby, what was your favorite part of the movie? My favorite part was probably when Kong jumped on top of uh, Mechagodzilla and just started, like, ripping him apart. <laughs> okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, as Sylvan put it, that would be a very satisfying finishing combo in a video game. Yes, it would. Yeah, getting back to Kong being more humanoid in his reactions, humans tend to have more sympathy for stuff that is humanoid, provided that it isn't in the Uncanny Valley. We would charge into a burning building to save a baby, maybe a dog, possibly a fish. Not really for a houseplant. <laughs> I yeah. millennials. Godzilla's facial acting just can't really compete with Kong, and that might be part of it with me. But, you know, my Godzilla is the champion Godzilla, who does end zone dances after he defeats the bad guy. 
and his goofy dad to Manila and steps on his tail to help him breathe fire. And that is the Godzillas, who is my best friend, and I love him. Well, I love him too. I also like him. But Godzilla is my favorite. Okay, so you see so your team Godzilla for this. You seem to be flipping back and forth a bit. Toby's team both. Yep. Where are you, team? Uh, whose team on you are you on, Cheryl? Oh no, Godzilla. Um, sorry, King Kong for this movie. Uh, I'm usually on Godzilla's side, but uh, for this movie, I'm on Team Wolf because yeah. I really like the movie and I really like where Kong punches Mechagodzilla and rips him apart. Mm. That was awesome. King Kong had them uh, Planet of the Apes like aw faces, and he was just trying to be a good dad. He's just like fine. Yeah, he kind of ado- he kind of adopted Gia too, even though, you know, Rebecca Hall's character. Uh Eileen, I had to, I had to look at my notes. <laughs> she officially adopted her. Okay, so that's everything in my notes. Is there anything we'd like to add about this very detailed, layered, nuanced film that we had to pay close attention to in order to follow before we conclude? Kong is better than Mechagodzilla has his fans, but I, I'm not. I'm not one of them. I, I, I like watching other monsters beat him up. Watching a giant gorilla punch a lizard in the face was very entertaining. <laughs> it was like, yeah, we all mostly liked it. See it or don't. Up to you. Good night.